in Miami-Dade County, there's been a protest every day for the past two weeks. And I've been to many of them, as many as I can, without exhausting myself. And sometimes I come directly from work and I'm wearing scrubs. Sometimes reporters will come up to me and say, hey, do you want to make a statement? Because they recognize that I'm a healthcare worker. And it makes me feel uncomfortable because recognizing that I'm in a position of privilege, I don't want to be a mouthpiece. I don't want to use that to, you know, like a lot of people are out here, they're doing work, but it's very performative, taking pictures. And I just don't want to be that person. I want to be out here doing the work, not taking advantage of the moment as a, as a photo op. So it's made me very uncomfortable, but then also realizing that we, in a position of privilege, have a duty, I guess, if we want to make change, to use our voices to affect that change. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Shrinking Burnout. This is Dr. Radhakrishnan, and I'm accompanied here by Dr. Wu. Hey, guys. We are two psychiatrists who are passionate about burnout. Today, we have an extremely important topic to talk about, racism in medicine. At the time of today's recording, it's June 17th, 2020. There are a lot of protests going on, mostly sparked by the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. Now, you might be asking why we're talking about racism in medicine when we're a burnout podcast. And let me tell you this. Clinician burnout, which we can define as emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and a low sense of personal accomplishment, doesn't occur in a vacuum. We focused on previous podcasts on the definition and the controversy of clinician burnout and systemic issues within medicine that contribute to clinician distress. When we think about racism, racism is a systemic issue that affects not only our patients of color, but also our fellow colleagues, as well as ourselves as healthcare providers. For me, this is something that I really care about. I'm Taiwanese American, and I face a lot of discrimination and overt racism just growing up as a kid in America, and also within my medical training as a medical student and also as a resident like I am today. So likewise, I'm an Indian American. I've also faced discrimination growing up and during my medical training, undergrad. So this topic of racism in medicine is also you know, very important to both of us and to all of our guests here today. So I went to medical school in Newark in a largely underserved and vulnerable community. And one statement that one of my attendings made earlier on in my training really stood out to me. Is it really the patient's fault for having worse medical outcomes because they missed their doctor's appointments or haven't been medication adherent or haven't been eating healthy foods or working out regularly? Our patients have bigger, life-threatening problems like lack of housing, lack of access to food, water, poor wages. So how can we expect our patients to take better care of their health when they're struggling to survive. So while we certainly could devote our full podcast series to discussing racial inequality in the U.S., we would like to focus the discussion today on racism in medicine and how it profoundly affects both clinicians and our patients. So we have three wonderful guests here, all of whom are resident physicians who have varying perspectives to share with us today. But before we hear from our guests, we want to offer a bit of background on some of the concepts that we will be discussing today. We can't talk about racism within medicine in a bubble without talking about American history. There's an incredibly long-standing history of racial violence in medicine, including horrible medical experiments exacted upon black slaves during the creation of various surgical procedures and medical equipment. In the 1930s, the Tuskegee experiments were created to record the natural history of syphilis in black men. There was, however, no informed consent obtained. None of the patients were aware of their exact diagnosis, and despite penicillin becoming the drug of choice for syphilis in 1947, researchers did not offer treatment to their subjects. 
The first news condemning the study was in 1972. By this time, it had already been 40 years. And so for a very long period of time as a result of these experiments, there was a very large degree of distrust towards medical providers by the black community, and rightly so. There's ongoing racial inequality within medicine that didn't just stop at the Tuskegee experiments. This is something that I really want to emphasize as well. Part of medical education, they really do talk about the Tuskegee experiments, but it's certainly not a one-off thing. Even today, there are a lot of research that's going on that says that black women are three to four times more likely to die during pregnancy-related causes than white women. Black patients, along with Latinx minority groups in the U.S., experience more illness, worse medical outcomes, and shorter life expectancy compared to white patients. So why is this the case? So it's very important to consider systemic factors, specifically social determinants of health. Social determinants of health are the conditions in which people are born grow, live, work, and age. They include factors like socioeconomic status, education, neighborhood and physical environments, employment, and social support networks, as well as access to healthcare. So these social determinants of health result in a disproportionate amount of minority, specifically Black and Latinx populations with more severe medical illness. There are a number of health inequalities, including decreased access to quality medical services, poor insurance coverage, decreased access to education, decreased access to healthy food, livable wages, affordable housing, all of which can contribute to decreased medical literacy and a lot of the other impediments that we notice within some of these underserved communities that we're caring for. And guys, I think we could spend like five podcasts worth or like six podcasts worth just really talking about all of these systemic issues. But when it comes to today's episode, we want to really focus upon our experiences as well as our guest experiences of being individual healthcare providers and experienced racism within medicine. So within the system that we work in, what do we do when we see a patient that's facing over discrimination because of their race or when we ourselves encounter prejudice from patients or even our colleagues? What do we do when we share the same race as our patients who are being discriminated against? And how can we, in terms of looking forward, as clinicians, fight against systemic racism? So I'd like to, on that note, introduce our guest speakers today, Dr. Maya Kondker, Dr. Audrey Lee, and Dr. Elian Obamido. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourselves? This is Dr. Kandiker. So I am an internal medicine pediatrics resident in Miami. Like Varsha, I also went to school in Newark. So I've been in urban settings for a while in populations that are predominantly Black and Hispanic. And I've always been interested in health disparities and how social determinants of health affect our patients' abilities to really have equitable health care. So this is a very interesting time for me to see everything playing out with the pandemic of COVID-19, the pandemic of police violence, and just racism rearing its ugly head in every aspect of society. My name is Elian Obamia, freshly minted doctor. So I'm a PGY1, so I'm a, going into psychiatry. And orientation starts next week for me. I also went to Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. Spoiler, I'm Black. <laughs> Officially, I'm Nigerian-American, so I've been in this country since I was two years old. Uh, that's interesting within itself to have lived, kind of seeing, like, I've had many experiences of a Black experience on two sides of the Atlantic, then becoming a doctor and just seeing kind of the role that played. Yeah, happy to be here. 
So my name is Audrey, Dr. Lee. I am also an internal medicine resident. I, like Dr. Wu, went to medical school in Brooklyn, New York. So also similarly was exposed early on in my medical training to predominantly black and brown communities and really saw firsthand a lot of the sequelae of inequitable care, segregation of care. And I think issues surrounding race and racism have always been really interesting to me. I personally am Asian American. I was born and raised here, grew up in New Jersey, not particularly in a racially diverse area, um, and definitely went to a university that was ivory tower, very privileged academic bubble. But I think that through my training in medical school and in residency, it's just become kind of ever more apparent how deeply racism permeates into our structures, particularly within healthcare. For me personally, that's just something that I would like to be a better ally about. And I think I'm constantly learning. So also very happy to be here. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is racism within medicine, medical education, and our experiences as medical professionals. Patients definitely say racist things to non-white providers. How do we individually deal with this distress? And how should we navigate those situations since it contributes to us feeling more cynical and emotionally exhausted when experiencing this? Even as early as pre-med in college, um, I realized that there was some disparity in healthcare that was prevalent enough that it was well known that it existed. At that time, I was still looking into what that meant and how we can combat that. As time has gone on, I've realized that the disparity in healthcare is related to the disparity in every other sector of life that people experience. There's not one good solution to it. It's kind of like re-examining everything that our society upholds. As a Black woman, I've felt the racism on several sides of medicine, the way that it affects the patient, the way that it affects a young Black person trying to get into medicine knowing that you're severely underrepresented in this field, and that's not by mistake, and the way that it affects, you know, just the healthcare system in general. So I've had several encounters with people who look at me and assume that I'm not a doctor based on the fact that I'm Black, the fact that I'm a woman. Immediately, I'm either a janitor or the food services person, or if it's a good day, then I'm a nurse. But it's never assumed right away that I'm the doctor when I step into the room. Even if I have on a badge that says physician, bright as day, if I have on a white coat, if I have a stethoscope around my neck, it doesn't matter. When I walk in the room, I'm met with some surprise that I'm the provider in that situation. And then on the flip side, I've noticed that there's ways that my colleagues or the system in general discriminates against patients of color. Um, I've heard disparaging remarks from other physicians. And I've seen just the ways that medicine can separate somebody based on their skin color. And I noticed that as early as medical school, when we learn things based on people's race, knowing that race is not a biological trait, we look at people differently in terms of their race, whether that comes to kidney function or response to heart failure medications, like there's just so many ways that we still practice race-based medicine. And I think all of that contributes to the system of racism. And Maya, I think you talked about a lot of things that we can potentially get into. <laughs> the other thing that I think is worth really examining, which I think could really fuel the discussion, is what you said about the faces of medicine, the faces of doctors. And when you, as a minority doctor or medical student, just see amongst your class 
Overall, the majority of medical students and people going into the doctor profession are actually majority white. And I think one seeing that and then seeing the disconnect with the patients that we're serving, essentially a bunch of you know white doctors that are taking care of these non-white patients. And I guess when it comes to actually being able to understand the patient issues and also like all of the societal issues, there has to be like some sort of disconnect and inability to really understand what's going on. You know, that's that's something that I think was and continues to be a, a source of discontent for me, just seeing this disconnect with our healthcare providers and also the patients that we see. So the other thing that you said, Maya, that definitely stood out to me was the fact that when you walk into a patient room, it's almost as if the power differential shifts as a result of people's prejudices, assumptions about your background. And I think that makes it extremely challenging when you're trying to care for patients, come up with a treatment plan, engage your patients, when you feel like you almost have to prove yourself. And tell me if I'm wrong, if that's sort of what you feel sometimes. I know certainly I have felt that at times feeling this pressure to almost prove myself to people more than I would have to say if I were a white male. There's been points where I have been with medical students who are, say, like white men, and they have been assumed to be the attending or I'm assumed to be the nurse in the room, something like that. And so it can be really hard in those kinds of positions to almost reassert yourself. Uh, You're right. That's exactly how it feels a lot of times that you have to prove yourself. And I find that I've adopted this policy of like when I step into a room, right away, I make it clear exactly who I am. That itself doesn't always help because then I have to remind them again, like, no, I am your physician. You are you are seeing a physician right now. But it has made me get in the habit of doing that as soon as I walk into a room so that I can establish, no, I'm the doctor here. I'll be taking care of you so that there's no confusion. When it comes to you know medical education and perhaps who is kind of being educated, maybe this goes beyond medicine and this goes just towards society in general. But when you have, for example, a largely homogenous population of fairly wealthy individuals that are going into medicine, what are some ways in which we can think about changing medical education or being able to adjust medical education such that we can reduce these things from happening? I mean, it's a, it's a systemic issue, right? That was an issue for me. So growing up, I grew up in Newark and Irvington, then I moved to suburbs of Union. So to very much, to a certain extent, the school I went to at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School in Newark, that was a home to me. You know, I still have aunts, I go to church down the street, and I very much, this is my community. And the people I was seeing in the community and talking to and visiting my aunties, on the weekends, these are not the people I was going to school with or learning from. So that was a problem. <laughs> I think Maya talked about just underrepresentation, and I think it does put an undue, I don't know if it's undue or not, it puts a, a lot of pressure on people of color, it puts a lot of pressure on me. Uh, whenever I entered a room, I very much identified with my patients, but also felt that I had to be a mouthpiece to talk for them. So yeah, just putting that out there, there was definitely extra pressure on me just being a person of color, being black. As to how I tried to fix this, uh, I'll just shout out one of my colleagues, Natasha Featherstone. I think we hit the ground running. Between our first year and second year, we were on the orientation committee and we were basically tasked with, it was a benign task of like getting the incoming class to know about Newark, its history and like just the rich history of Newark, the people they're going to be serving, the community we live in in the Central Ward. And Newark itself is a, it's a very peculiar place to live because it's kind of the cliche, this is the hood of New Jersey. Newark is very famous. You have a very um, 
specific demographic in Newark and its reputation precedes itself. And with that being said, a lot of people have a certain bias towards Newark. And a lot of those people are the rich, more privileged, sometimes white people who are going to the medical school. And I think that bias shows itself from even orientation week. Certain people were very concerned about their safety. And I think they were uh, kind of projecting like the city was not safe for them. That in itself was a little bit of a microaggression in my opinion. So we were tasked with like, oh, how are we going to ease these people into Newark? How are we going to give them a diet version of Newark? How are we going to get them involved in the community? And um, what we wound up doing was doing a panel. We had a people come from all around the community to talk about ways they can engage. We had a guy come, he started a gym and he does a Zoom sessions at churches. We had people who started local gardens to just come and show them that, hey, we do this. We're trying to give more options to fix the problem of food deserts. But basically, it was like an expose to show them that Newark is more than just gang violence and the hood, per se. So that was one way we tried to address it, practically speaking. Uh, I was younger then, and I, I just had all these ideas. The two other things I did is I think we did the whole teaching and the privilege wall, which I can go into more in depth because that eventually became part of the curriculum. And that's something that I continue to do every single year that I was at New Jersey Medical School. Just for our listeners, Elian, Maya, and I went to medical school together, if that was not apparent already. And so just to talk about the privilege walk, that was a really important addition to the curriculum, I would say, at NJMS. And one thing that really stood out to me was some of the discomfort it actually brewed and the microaggressions as a result after engaging in the privilege walk. So just to describe a little bit more, um, Elian or or Maya, if any either of you want to go into a little bit more detail about what the privilege walk actually was and how valuable it is. I'm just going to first give context to the whole thing. So during 2014, I think it was December, it was, it was somewhere in winter, that was the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of this reanimated conversation on race. And so we got to see that in real time. So there was so much growth for, I think, for me individually as uh, just being a mouthpiece or just as an advocate and doing advocacy. So when we first had that process, the first thing we did, we were bright and bushy-eyed. We stood in front of our classmates and, um, you know, we, we gave our own accounts of racism and how this affects us and your classmates and the community. Um, we didn't have a plan. I, <laughs> I think we just sent some text messages. It was very grass, grassroots. And we were like, yo, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stand here at, when the morning group has their TBL and we're going to stay here and we're going to do it again because it's going to be such an awesome response. You remember this, Maya? Yes, I remember it very vividly. <laughs> so the point of it was to like shock them, to be like, hey, I know it's all whoop-dee-doo, fun and games, and we're a great class. Our class is very great. I'm not going to call out anyone in particular, but we wanted them to see that this is a big issue and you know, to let them know that we're in Newark and the people you're treating are also suffering from these issues of police brutality, racism, implicit bias. And that it affects their classmates as well. Exactly. So um, I think we stood in front of them in anatomy. It was like we disrupted the peace, you know, renegade crew. And we told them, hey, we're black. Uh, We suffer from police brutality. People follow us when we walk through stores. You know, we each have a certain experience and we want to know that you guys stand with us. You can talk about this one. Well, we kind of brought up the issue. We said, hey, you know, there's been a lot going on in the media Eric Garner, Mike Brown, you know, racism is really being highlighted right now. Mm -hmm. And even though you might not be thinking about it, it affects our patients, it affects our community, and it affects even your classmates. Mm -hmm. And we gave personal experiences of ways that 
racism touched our lives. And we said, you know, we're a great class. A lot of you guys are, you know, very supportive of us. And we'd like for you to stand with us. A lot of us are going to the Millions March in New York this weekend. And we're going to march alongside these thousands of people in support of justice for these Black people that were killed unjustly. It was kind of an awkward situation. It was very polarizing. And I will say that when we were out there at the march, I was disappointed because almost no one showed up besides mm. us. Maybe, maybe one or two, Elian, almost no one showed up. And I felt like I'm not the type of person to get up in front of people and say, hey, I need your help. I need you on my side, using your voice, using your body mm-hmm. for this cause. But I thought that maybe at least a handful of people would be there. Yeah. Or like a percentage of people would be there. But it was just us, the Black and brown students of the class. There's even a picture of us that circulates of like 10 of us standing in a line in the Millions March, the black and brown students of the class of 2018 and JMS. Mm -hmm. So it was a little disappointing. And that's when I realized, well, you can't look to everybody else (laughs) to help you out. And you can't expect that just because people are coming to Newark and they've claimed to want to help these communities and whatever else that they really are about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And not trying to call anybody out and in particular, because this happens across the country. I agree, I agree. Um, privileged students benefit by learning from underprivileged communities. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a form of this power dynamic that contributes to racism. Absolutely. You think about the history of the U.S. and the things that you guys mentioned, there's this element of distrust within the black and brown communities because of experimentation and things that have happened in the past. And then you have people that are coming into your communities learning by not experimenting, but kind of like training mm-hmm. in your care. But do they really care about your life? Yeah, I agree completely. It was crazy to see in real time how things went from there. I think from there we had very, very good responses from the faculty at NJMS. So NJMS, we had um, Dr. Tori and Easterling. You may have anyone who wanted to come, really, but the people who showed up were all the Black and Brown and Latino people. He had to sit down with us to talk about just the climate of what was going on who we were as doctors, the obligation we had to our community, how we should go out and affect, you know, positive changes. He talked to us about how a white coat can be political, how we can have positive change in the community. From that conversation, we scheduled the die-in at our own school. Then we did the Millions March. And then after that, we scheduled the first teaching. The teaching, we worked with the humanism department. We had a conversation on the role of race in medicine. I was the keynote speaker. I wore a blazer I bought from Forever 21. It was great. I was the <laughs> So the theme is like, I'm glad that we channeled that energy and I think it did change who I was. And I think it did bring a lot of things to light. Everything was important from there. From there, it was polarizing again, but one of the activities we did was the privilege walk. They took that and made it part of the orientation for every single incoming class. So after that year, I did the privilege walk again with the next class and the class after that and the class, and it's still going. To talk on just the effect it had on people, That also is important to just take into account. I think it's very important to see that in medical school, you know, they go through this whole process of, I guess it's a process to see that you're a good person. You really care, you know, the humane part of medicine. And you, you know, you do your best to pick people who you think are not racist, pick people who really care about people and addressing issues, not just as uh, objectively as diseases, but as people and like labels that come with that, whether it's social labels, cultural labels, et cetera. And I think, Part of our disappointment or disillusionment was seeing people bothered or seeing like what we were doing was a bother. They're like, oh, I'm just trying to get this TBL done. 
And I think part of why that was an uncomfortable conversation is because when you talk about something like racism, which has uh, its roots in slavery, which things are just undeniably evil, people automatically say that this doesn't deal with me and I'm a good person. Don't you know that? I'm your buddy. I just came to Bellevue. We played basketball yesterday. I don't need to have this conversation. And so what I had to overcome that while setting up the privilege wall, even while setting up this whole talk, I had to lure people in. It was like, oh, if you come to this, oh, we'll give you credit for this. And uh, you can uh, get two weeks off from graduation. Oh, if you come to this, you'll the incentive wasn't there. Even The process of even setting that, the practice of setting that up for me, I don't even know what it really taught, but I know that they were, <laughs> the process itself was valuable. I wanted to get Audrey's opinion on this because of our experiences working in Brooklyn. And for me, kind of what you just said, Maya, about this whole, like, we are a privileged people, essentially training on an underprivileged population. And I don't know, Audrey, if you have more thoughts on this, but it just like feels wrong where you're kind of working in a population for years, and then you match. And then for, for us, Audrey, like how many people at Downstate, stay at Downstate, and are really interested in helping out the community? I have so many thoughts about this. Fantastic. (laughs) First off, I want to just say that I'm sorry that you guys went through that experience surrounding 2014, um, and obviously more than that. But I, I will say that at Downstate, we had very similar conversations at that time. Actually, I think like in that time, a lot of us were actually at the Millions March as well. There was a really big contingent. All This was around when White Coats for Black Lives was started, coming out of a lot of like med student organized die-ins. And um, certainly there was a large flowing white coat, short white coat contingent there. So I wish we all could have linked up and gotten to know each other then. But yeah, I remember one thing that really vividly stuck out to me at the time, having been pretty organized in like the die-ins at Downstate at least, was there was like this huge discussion surrounding like, well, like, should we be using our white coats in this political way? And personally thinking, I don't think many of us think that it's a political thing to call out racism, to call out injustice and inequity. That's not a choice for really for any of us, but certainly for many of our patients, many of our classmates, that is not an inherently political act. And I think that the act of using a white coat, which for better or for worse, accords a certain amount of authority or, I don't know, um, some extra power and privilege in society, to use that to advocate is not, I think, a bad thing. And I think like at the time it was like very controversial. And I think now hopefully people think of it as less controversial. But um, yeah, it was like a really big thing. And I remember one of my classmates who is a black woman got like an anonymous email that called her a monkey, which was truly terrible for so many reasons. And, you know, why she was the target and out of like all of the people that were organizing this, I mean, I think it's pretty clear someone was being a racist. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a, I don't want to take up too much time and space with like my perspective surrounding this, because I think you guys have lived through this much more. At Downstate in particular, I think the segregation of care within New York City is something that is like very well documented. And it was heartbreaking knowing that 45 minutes away, there were all these like fancy glass buildings with like much fancier care that many of our black and brown patients would 
like never really realistically be able to access, whether for barriers surrounding transportation or financially or anything else. And certainly there's a lot that has been written too surrounding some of the other institutions in New York City and in Manhattan where those Chinese buildings are, where patients of color, patients who have less means are more frequently channeled towards like resident clinics or trainee clinics in some way. And people who have more means and frequently are people who are white wind up being in like attending clinics. And the triage kind of that occurs with that is probably structurally racist in a lot of ways. And so I think like that element of experimentation of not really building community of being a transient figure, if you are not a part of that community and you don't have a sense of why it's important for you to care about these things, it's just this whole vicious cycle, obviously, of continued lack of empathy, continued lack of advocating for justice, and I think dismissal of people's real lived experiences. Let me ask you this. So you guys mentioned that when you did some of these uh, things at New Jersey, that the reception was polarizing. I'm curious, what was so polarizing about your actions? Everybody kind of claimed or was assumed to care about the community and to be against racism. I mean, we assume that most people are against racism, but there are racists that exist. So not everyone is, but also the fact that racism isn't just somebody exhibiting some behavior against somebody else because of their race. It's not just somebody sending a letter to somebody calling them a monkey. It's also perpetuating the system of racism. And so we have within us embedded ways where it's ingrained in us that we're still perpetuating the system. Now, I say all this to say that when we assumed all these things about these students, that they came to Newark with these bright eyes, ready to help this community, and then you have some of the students standing up and saying, hey, let's talk about race, like seriously. Let's talk about it and the way that it affects some of us and the way that some people have unfair advantages and other people have unfair disadvantages. And it just was met with silence in that situation. But in the situation of the teaching that we mentioned earlier, it was met with tears and guilt and just discomfort with having to face your own privilege. So it was really polarizing because it put the Black students and the Hispanic students in a position where it seemed like we were super radical or something. Like we were trying to do something so out of the ordinary. We were trying, like we were just trying to, I don't know what, but it just made it seem like we were on one page and everybody else was just on another. Yeah. So I think that's what I meant by polarizing. I remember that time. I remember a couple of people who were quite, upset after the privilege walk. And I feel like a lot of it is reflective more so of these microaggressions. And also, it's almost as if people internalize that feeling of guilt, um, but somehow are asking people of color to absolve them of that guilt, um, which I don't think is anyone's responsibility. 
at the end of the day. And it, it almost felt like it was. And so j- just to give an example of what the privilege walk looked like, people would ask questions. I, I remember one of the questions was something like you had access to dental care and you'd walk forward versus stay where you are if you didn't. So it would be like a more visual sort of representation of the difference in privilege that people have. There's a huge disparity, essentially, is what it showed. And I think people who are more well-off and more privileged felt really guilty about it. But I don't think it's anyone's responsibility to make them feel better about that either. When it comes to talking about race, when it comes to talking about racism in general in America, and I would even say the world, it's really uncomfortable for anybody to talk about. I think, you know, what you experience when it came to doing all of these things is that racism is, it affects people of all socioeconomic classes, all intelligence, and it just brings about this level of discomfort that people just aren't willing to or aren't able to or develop these sort of weird, guilty feelings whenever you kind of bring up something that they're somehow connected to, like you said, maybe their great great uncle was a plantain owner, plantation owner in Virginia or something like that. Plantain owner. Plantain. <laughs> I, uh, plantation. Okay, Varsha. Maybe. But even then, just the act of, of sort of talking about something that's uncomfortable. For me as a psychiatrist, this is sort of like exposure therapy for the society. And mm-hmm. maybe in 2014, when all this stuff started coming about, that initial response was really heightened and people were really uncomfortable talking about it. Then it comes again, right? Because this stuff has been going on forever, right? It's not 2014. It was even before then. But mm-hmm. even before, people didn't even want to talk about it. But now 2014, people started talking about it. People were really uncomfortable. And then now... Because this is sort of what I think the benefit of educating is, of being able to do things like this, is that you're essentially exposing people to confront the uncomfortable realities of society in general. And hopefully, with continued work like this, this level of discomfort is going to go down. And I think our duty as doctors, like wearing white coats, is to really just confront a lot of these uncomfortable realities. Because otherwise, we are part of this system that just is going to keep on chugging along if we don't do anything about it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I think when we first were on the millions march, social media, I think we saw the birth of many leaders within the Black community. And then you saw by the next year, Black Lives Matter was basically labeled as a terrorist group. So it's like um, the opposition or that pushback that you saw, that we saw personally, it, it was bigger than just us. I think it, it not only happened in our school, but in the country as well. People didn't want to hear Black Lives Matter. Instead, it was All Lives Matter. And when you think about it, that's not a rational thing to say, if Black lives are included in All Lives Matter. But I think that um, that pushback, you know, that exposure therapy kind of thing. My thing right now is that Black Lives Matter is definitely something that everyone is putting out freely, but we need to create spaces where people can have these continued conversations. Otherwise, I don't want it to fade away to the point of sterility. I think there's power in how it's polarizing is, but we always need to give it that reverence per se to really push that change. Yeah, I just wanted to say, like, in speaking about this exposure therapy, most of the time, this conversation is pushed forward by people of color. And I think that Varsha mentioned before, then that puts the burden on people of color to teach others how not to oppress them. And in 2014, I was ready and eager to teach people about things that they usually don't think about and that might make them uncomfortable. 
and why it's important. In 2020, I am exhausted. I'm tired. I still see people dying on the news. I still see the same things I've been seeing since then and before. And people are still saying the same things that they were saying before. Yes, Black Lives Matter is not so much a controversial thing to say anymore, but now it's a thing you just say, just so that you seem like you're a part of the movement and you aren't racist. Because at this point, Mm -hmm. not saying Black Lives Matter brands you a racist. It almost feels disingenuous and sometimes, right? It feels like, is this you know, now bandwagon that everyone's jumping on, do you actually mean it when you say that? Or is this something trendy for you to say right now? I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And something else that you mentioned, Maya, the idea of feeling exhausted, I guess that sort of ropes back into the idea of why we're talking about this in the first place in a burnout podcast. I mean, having to explain yourself to your patients, to your colleagues, having to be the mouthpiece for your community is exhausting. And I think that plus the, you know, existing responsibilities of being a physician, being a resident, I mean, it's a lot to expect of a single person. When we recorded this podcast last week, it ended up being over an hour long. We're going to release the second half next week. Thanks for listening, guys. Shrinking Burnout is a podcast about furthering the discussion of clinician burnout and recognizing the resilience and hard work that clinicians regularly demonstrate. Nothing on this show should be taken as medical or psychiatric advice. All of the opinions expressed on this podcast are solely our own and do not reflect those of our employer.